you will receive to ask Him for, to receive that love. Open your hearts to Christ. Do not be afraid. He loves you so very much, and He wants to shower you with every blessing. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of Ignite Radio Live over the four mighty stations of Annunciation Radio. You are with Greg and Stephanie, Greg and Stephanie Schleter. Good evening, everybody. And a wonderful guest we will in- introduce very shortly. Well, if you've been sleeping the last few months, this is going to be news for you. We are in a presidential election year. And uh, it has never been more unique, more exciting. Many would say that uh, the stakes perhaps have never been higher, although as long as I have uh, been on this planet and been familiar with presidential politics, they've always been saying that. But uh, truly, there, there are a lot of peculiarities uh, that have n- we've never seen before in our nation's history. And um, we are very blessed tonight to have Professor Lee Strang with us, familiar to many of you. He's, uh, he's quite the expert and knowledgeable speaker and author. Uh, he's a professor at the University of Toledo College of Law. Uh, he's humble about his roots, but he is a Harvard Law, the holy grail of law schools. He is uh, from Harvard Law School. He survived with his Catholicity intact, a little bit of a snarky comment. But anyways, <laughs> and uh, he comes by way also of, of Iowa, the Iowa area, and uh, my parents hail from Dubuque, Iowa. So I felt kindred with Lee and his family right out of the gates because my dad uh, went to his alma mater, Loris College, and uh, also Bishop Myers, um, a good friend of my graduate of Loris College. He's an archbishop of Newark, New Jersey. Uh, I was a seminarian for him for the Diocese of Peoria, Illinois. So a lot of great connections. I'm very blessed to have you with us tonight, Lee, in this conversation. Sure. Thanks, Greg. So we're going to get some announcements out of the way, but I want to give you folks the number tonight. And I want to invite you to be bold and to call in and interact with us about politics. Our theme tonight is Faith in Politics. That number is 877 877- 275-8098. What is on your mind? We certainly have some things that we want to discuss tonight, but what's on your mind? Aren't those the two topics that they say never to talk about, right? Let's do it. <laughs> so, especially in Lent. That's so let's, right. let's take it up and go into the desert uh, where we're doing battle, right? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear Lord, you came out of the desert we read a couple weeks ago. Into, the, into your ministry. Your ministry was inaugurated, God. You came into this world to awaken us to our identity in you. Not simply uh, privatized for us individually, God, but f- and not just for those who might call themselves the religious or faithful, but for the good of every human person. You fashioned us in your very image, and you call us to the dignity of that identity. And uh, you call us to claim this world for you, Lord, which is not simply a spiritual book on the shelf, but is woven into every aspect of our lives that is meant to seep in color and be the fabric of even the secular world, God, is a good for every person. And so, Lord, we pray that tonight and increasingly we would uh, be attuned to your heart, your heart for the good for every human person. 
the nature of love, to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others, that this would truly be the norm of our lives, in our marriages, our families, and yes, in politics and in the world. Give us the courage to do this, God, and to find ways to do it with even greater vigor and respect and love. Let it be an occasion to bring this nation and this world together. We ask these things in your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, Son and, and the, the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, a few quick announcements. Tonight we unite our radio time with people out at St. Jerome's in Walbridge who are having an Ignite right now. So the famous home of the famous, uh, of course, Father Schild, but also the famous Friday Fish Fries. Um, so awesome to be praying with you tonight at St. Jerome. Tomorrow night is another Ignite at Little Flower Parish um, tomorrow, Wednesday, February 24th. I believe their Ignite is starting at 6.15. You might want to check their website to 7 o'clock, 6.30. <laughs> Joseph is doing sign language to me. He does the community calendars, so he would know. So perhaps confessions might start at 6.15. But 6.30, Little Flower Parish here in Toledo. Wonderful, wonderful community. And we encourage you, as we have been, to sign up your children, your grandchildren, your brothers, your sisters for Catholic Youth Summer Camp. We want to have a big impact on this region now and for many years to come and invest in forming and engaging dynamic young disciples. So we are joining with CYSC um, as we partner with them and Bishop Thomas in our diocese to engage our high school youth and middle school youth. And in particular, we are asking the youth of this diocese to sign up for Session F, which is July, I'm sorry, Session D, July 3rd through 8th for the high schoolers and for the middle school youth for Session F, July 17th through the 22nd, where our dear Bishop Thomas will be uh, celebrating the closing Mass for the middle schoolers that week. Joined by Father McBeth, so we encourage you pastors who are listening also to come and experience yes. uh, the impact of being with your young people and not simply forming them to be disciples, but to continue it beyond that powerful week. So advocate to your pastor, and you can get more information at cysc.com, cysc.com. Um, defining courage, defining strength, defining love, a Lenten retreat for Catholic men, which is a semi-silent day of reflection. I like that. Recollection focused on the sacraments, Station of the Cross, Eucharistic Adoration, Reconciliation, and the speaker of all speakers, Greg Schleter, um, which is, is Saturday, Lent. March 5th, 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at St. Peter and Paul Catholic Church. There is no registration fee. There will be a free will offering. Um, so get more information at St. Peter and Paul Catholic Church, which is in Sandusky, I believe. Very dynamic uh, community of men out there, by the way. Eric Dudenhofer at the helm with a number of others who have been uh, really making a difference in that area. This is going to be a very robust, uh, good occasion of men gathering and growing deeper in faith. So please join us. March 5th for that. Um, and again, as we invite you continually, commit to talk and pray as a family. Go to massimpact.us and check out the new Livid Gathering Guide each week. And we also invite you, while you are there, to click on Mass Impact Kingdom Builders to be united in personal family and parish discipleship. Massimpact.us. 
So we are going to dive right into it, faith in politics. And uh, actually, um, just so we can, maybe you've heard Lee on the radio before, I've heard him speak. I'm just, if I missed anything, Lee, which there's so much that could be said, what else might you share with us by way of background in our subject tonight? Other than his amazing wife, Liz, and his wonderful children. Go ahead, Lee. (laughs) Um, So I guess I would say that in, in what I do in my in my professional life, which is teaching and writing, I would say that what motivates my scholarship, sometimes explicitly, most of the time not, just because of the audiences, is uh, trying to articulate how an American in 2016 who looks at our legal landscape would react to that. So how would you describe that? How would you um, respond to that? So some of the challenges we face, like Supreme Court opinions, um, and in uh, doing that, sometimes with an overt Catholic lens, and sometimes not. So uh, tonight's radio show will be will be overt. Um, there are a lot of times in the university campus where it's where there's a uh, I don't know if, is that I guess is that lighting a bushel uh, putting a bushel <laughs> basket on my on my lamp. So I guess that would be the only thing is that my, my, I view my professional life as being a manifestation of my vocation as a as a legal scholar. Beautiful. Wonderful. Blessed to have you with us and uh, a member of this wonderful community. So, Lee, um, as we were talking before, uh, it, it occurs to me that before we even talk about the subject and ask what does faith have to do with politics, um, many of us are uncomfortable with the subject of politics. Um, we may read the paper if we're invested or interested, and we may have kind of a privatized notion that's kind of so personal and so charged that, you know, it's just between me and God, if you will, and uh, and maybe just uh, not a comfort level in talking about it. And I grew up in a family of seven children where it was encouraged. We just were encouraged to talk about difficult issues. I can't tell. (laughs) You who know my brother, Hillsdale, you were there a couple days ago. Really good experience. Anyways, um, no, but just uh, I realized that I was kind of an alien um, as I got older, that most people don't have a comfort level of just talking about these sorts of issues. So my first question is, you know, how do we create a kind of culture where we can discuss difficult issues respectfully even involving disagreement how important is it and how do we do it yeah Greg as you were as you were talking I was thinking about my own experience which I would say that on the spectrum of um, not talking about political issues to talking about it our family was more in the direction of your family but at the same time I've always felt the tug of what might be the traditional American Catholic position which is that where we've been to some degree outsiders um, so coming to America late, coming to America as Catholics to a relatively Protestant country, coming to America where uh, American Catholics Catholicism was perceived as a threat by many people. And so one reaction to that is to not talk about it publicly, right? Not to cause the, 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 the your hosts uh, to, uh, to become challenged by that. And I also wonder if maybe traditional Catholic practices were relatively um, um, inward looking and so mm-hmm. I'm thinking, comparing, for example, a traditional Latin Mass versus the the, the Novus Ordo, and so I think it, it, there are a lot of things that explain why Catholics traditionally have been have been reticent to share to share the faith or talk about politics in general. And so, um, and, and one of the questions is that you that you identified is, do we need to have an opportunity or a uh, a uh, in a, a a desire to be able to engage other people with conversation and and. The answer is, I think, is clearly yes. Um, this isn't this isn't uh, the leave it to be for America, right? Where one could live with one's neighbors. Um, your, your neighbors went to church; they might have gone mm-hmm. to a different mm-hmm. church. Your neighbors um, maybe had few a, a few fewer kids, but tended not to. Uh, they they dressed similarly, they talked similarly, they held the same values, they lived very similarly. 
and then America unfortunately is not is not around and so we have to we as Catholics have to change how we interact with our fellow citizens now that doesn't mean that we are aggressive with our fellow citizens that means we exercise prudence to a to a robust degree um, as somebody who teaches in a not just a secular environment but it's a, I would say an aggressively secular environment where where there's a view there the, the general perspective is not sympathetic to Catholicism and it's aggressively not sympathetic mm-hmm. that that I view myself as as constantly trying to not my hide my light under a bushel basket but at the same time work on building relationships finding situations where those conversations can occur and one of the things that I think that we as Catholics can do uh, just thinking about concentric circles so so family community and then broader society mm-hmm. and so thinking about where each of us is at what we can do in our places in life that allow the creation of space for those kind of conversations to occur where it's in a non-threatening manner and so for example, in the university, an easy way to do that is to create a debate, right? So so we have a presidential debate coming up. Christians have something important to say about that. And at the same time, we reasonably disagree about who might be the ideal presidential candidate, either in a different party or in the general election. And so a relatively safe space where people expect other people to have to say to say what they believe in a in a form that's not offensive would be creating a debate. Now in your family, unless you're like the Schleter family, apparently, that's that's <laughs> not what most people are going to do. But I but like the Schleter family, what a parent can do is at the dinner table have converse, have frank conversations with your spouses about who is it that you like, what is it you like about different presidential candidates, or maybe issues that are percolating in life. And in fact, one of the things that the Strang family has has taken to doing, uh, some and well, I'd say initially to my kids' chagrin, but still to some degree that way. <laughs> but thinking ahead of time before dinner, what are the conversation points that we can have? And so what that does is it not only habituates my wife and I to having those conversations, mm-hmm. which isn't too hard at this point, but it habituates our kids to that. That's the normal way, right? That's the Schleter way of acting out, acting in the real world. And then taking that to the next step up to a relatively bigger community, so like one's parish. So for, for example, at Holy Trinity, we have a men's group. And in the men's group, um, at the next time we're going to meet, the conversation typically is about what the Sunday readings are going to be, which which is a great thing to do, right? But 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 take a hiatus from that and talk about the general subject of politics, and then get into the concrete about what is it, how do we evaluate the different candidates, and then what are the candidates that each of us currently thinks, or we generally currently think, are meeting the criteria, at least the best That's possible. That's awesome. Yeah, and so so I think just sitting back and being creative, and and here's what I have in mind actually. So the United States and the inability, especially of Catholics, I think, to talk frankly about important political issues um, wasn't always that way. So when you think about what may have been the ideal time for those kind of conversations to occur in a public sphere, uh, might have been mid-19th century United States. And so a little bit after Alexis de Tocqueville came to the U.S. and he commented on the robust political debate that Americans love to engage in, sometimes too robust, mm-hmm. right? It was whiskey-fired many times. <laughs> and Thinking about the Lincoln-Douglas debate, so they took place, thinking of Peoria, they took place all over, uh, at, I think at six different locations in Illinois, and they took place in the heat, mm. and they took place where thousands of people, farmers mostly, would bring their families to spend hours wow. listening to these men debate really important issues at a right. really, really high level. It was their entertainment. Yeah, that, that's right. That was their entertainment. I think that's exactly the point, Greg, is that is that today our entertainment is a lot of things, and, uh, mm-hmm. and and a few of them maybe are of substantively similar, uh, but most of them are not. And so we become unhabituated mm-hmm. to having conversations about important issues, and the way to become rehabituated is to create spaces where those conversations occur in our mm-hmm. families, in our bigger communities, and then ultimately in our broader political life. 
It's uh, fabulous. I can think back to my undergraduate days at Miami of Ohio, the scholar leader room. Now, these were kids so who were very invested, um, who uh, were comfortable talking politics, and I was in the minority. Um, I was very much, this is the time of uh, George Bush Sr., and a number of us were involved with that campaign. And the interesting thing is our fraternity, which before me, I was not a fraternity guy, but it had been kicked off a campus, and it was reestablished while I was there because it was George Bush's fraternity. But the interesting thing, it was head of college Republicans and the head of college Democrats both became part of this new recolonizing fraternity. So it was delightful. For us to build friendship where we could have these conversations, and we did have these conversations. My point is, to our listeners, done well, it can be a unifier. And I think that regard for the other person is obviously absolutely key because many of us run the risk of hanging our value, if you will, um, on issues, if you will, and our value is deeper than that. And by our regarding people and listening to them and asking questions, I think is a key thing also that I find very valuable. Uh, cross-country stuff, I think back to Erie, PA, and the Catholic big cross-country meet, the certain gentleman you know who had the big uh, um, button on his uh, lapel of a candidate whom we did not support at all. <laughs> And, uh, you know, right there, hey, you know, it opened the door. Tell me what you like about this particular candidate. Why do you like this candidate? Do these issues matter? Mm -hmm. So asking the question, put it in his box. And almost the Socratic thing is maybe another way of of really um, approaching people that might be helpful to listeners. Ask questions. What do they value? What is that hierarchy? Yeah, and so the way you're thinking about Socrates, so in, in the law school classroom, the way it typically operates is that the professor asks a series of questions. And, and I think there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, but one of the one of the results of that is that the students really never know like where I'm coming from, whatever mm-hmm. my perspective is on mm-hmm. a particular substantive issue, and it opens the door for them. And I, in fact, what I do is I intentionally start the semester and continue up to actually today, saying I want somebody to make argument X, I want somebody to make argument not X, and what that allows students to do is get comfortable in engaging in substantive issues, even if they don't necessarily agree with the point that they're making, in a forum where they know it's not about who they are necessarily, mm-hmm. but it's about evaluating the truth of the matter that's at issue. And um, I can imagine at uh, like you know the, the prototypical family Thanksgiving event too. You you you, you ask the question, right? You don't you don't, you're not. A what great, do you think about, or did you read about? Kind that's of thing. right. Yeah, and, and throw it out there. If people people take the bait, so to speak, great. If not, then you know that's probably imprudent to push it further in that situation. Um, and I also think that. My broader point was to create spaces, to be self-conscious about creating spaces in all the different places where we're at. And I think it's actually really important that we do that with some alacrity because what I see is actually the space for us having certain conversations is closing. Mm. Um, so, for example, um, I'm in charge of a lecture series at the law school. We brought a gentleman in whose position was, the, the basic thesis was that affirmative action hurts the people it's supposed to help, which is I think a plausible thesis, and it's one that if I were a fan of affirmative action, I would definitely want to hear about because it would it could mean that I'm doing something counterproductive to my own views, right? But the reaction was very negative because mm. that was what I found. It was that that was a space that people wanted to close off from discussion. And so by forcing the discussion, what you do is you kind of stake your flag that this is still a point of conversation. And in fact, we're right now on Catholic radio, right? And so today, for example, Al Cresta in his afternoon show was talking about, among other things, Pope Francis's comments about uh, about uh, birth control mm-hmm. and the and the Zika virus, and you know, there's I think reasonably different views on that. But that but Catholic radio is among other things a space for those conversations to occur. And so, we as Catholics need to think about what are some other places we can ha- we can. 
create those spaces for conversations to occur in our personal and social lives. Wonderful. You're tuned in to Ignite Radio Live with Greg Greg and Stephanie Schleter and Professor Lee Strang. Our theme tonight is Faith in Politics, and we invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or comment. Be bold. Uh, We just set the stage that it is important for us to have respectful conversations about these things. And that number is 877-275-8098. 877-275-8098. A bit of a primer, a key reason for having uh, Professor Strang on with us tonight was the Supreme Court Justice uh, Antonin Scalia dying um, last week and his monolithic um, influence on the court and uh, overall on society. And we're going to get that to that shortly, but just to kind of pique your appetite, uh, Lee had written a magnificent article in Crisis Magazine, and I will post that at our website. And by the way, I also want to say at the end of tonight, as usual, uh, we're going to take your prayer requests. So if you connect with me on Facebook, Greg Schleter, you'll see the little entry there. We have a number of wonderful petitions that we join in praying for for, or just email me, alive at massimpact.us. Okay, so we discussed the importance of just creating an environment where we can have respectful conversation about these issues, and it's a challenge. And we're going to have to step outside the comfortable boat, uh, you know, and find and learn prudence along the way, and we're going to fail, and we all of us know that. But I want to turn the question now to those who are listening right now, Lee, who are prayerful, they're spiritual, they're mass-going folks, and they're asking the question, what does this have have to do with politics? What does the Catholic faith, mass, prayer, have anything to do with politics? Sure. That's that's a good question, and uh, I think it's a common question. And so I think there are two basic reasons why Catholics should be engaged in political life, and one has to do with the person, him or herself, and then the other has to do with our broader society. So when you think about what it is that human beings are made to do, they're made to do a couple of things. One is to uh, know God, love him, serve him, and be with him in heaven. And in this earth, it's our, our duty is our goal is to be happy. And so one way or a way that human beings become happy is that we uh, participate fully in our community's life. And so Aristotle famously described human beings as political animals. And he did so because many of the virtues that allow for a full human life involve political participation or at least types of political p- participation. So the conversations that you made that you described, Greg, um, uh, loyalty, right? So, I, don't, I think loyalty is one of the virtues that's kind of on the downward slide, but loyalty is one of the virtues, and one is loyal to one's friends by helping them, having conversations with them. One is loyal to one's country by working for its betterment, and the way we do that is through political participation. And so we actually better ourselves mm. by engaging in political participation. And so what it brings to mind is, Greg, you mentioned that I'm from Iowa, and so one of my favorite facets, because we were political nerds growing up, was uh, work play, uh, not playing, although it was kind of playing in some ways, uh, <laughs> Participating in the Iowa caucuses. Oh, so, nice. So they were these amazing, and I think it's hard for people who haven't participated in them. It's you get together with a bunch of your neighbors in a church basement, in a living room. And a, a pitchfork. <laughs> no, we just have tractors now. And, <laughs> and, uh, and Or, or in, a, in a school room. And the first thing you do is people will stand up and say, I'm for candidate A, and here's why. I'm for candidate B, and here's why. And there'll be some back and forth about, well, candidate A stinks because of these reasons. Or what about this point that candidate candidate A made. And then there's a debate, a discussion, and then a vote based on where people are at. And then they'll be like re-voting as people change their positions and are persuaded. Mm-hmm. And when you go to that, you can see human beings in a respect, you talk about respectful uh, manner, even though they disagree on many things, coming out of there having participated in one of the most important facets of our 
life here in the United States, which is helping select our future leaders. So it was an incredibly powerful experience, and that I think is what I'm trying to get at. Where mm. by participating politically, you're a, you're the better you're a better person for having done that. Fabulous. We're going to go to a caller right now. Uh, Jeff is calling in. What's your question or comment, Jeff? Uh, first of all, I appreciate your show. It's terrific. Always enjoy listening to it and really appreciate the comments from uh, Professor Strang. Thank you. Um, my, um, my observation and, I guess, question is it seems that we crossed a divide somewhere, oh, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 years ago, um, that Democrats and Republicans no longer discuss policy. I, I grew up in a household where one, my parents were of two different political parties, Oh, wow. And my family <laughs> right. were two different political parties, and yet it was respectful. And the, the conversations really went around policy. Um, Americans didn't disagree a whole lot about character or the mm. nature of the country. But it, it just seems that even in high academic circles like a law school itself, um, nobody talks about specific policy issues. They're all embedded in their own worldview. And they attack each other and defend each, defend their uh, position on the basis of that worldview. So if you could comment on how that, do you agree that's happened and how did that, how did that come to be in the country? Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, I think and that's I'll it. Listen, uh, I'll listen off, off the line. Thanks, Thank Jeff. Thank you for calling God in. God bless you. Thanks. Bye. I think that's a great observation. And so in, when, when, when Greg, you had reached out and said, hey, let's talk about politics. And, I, and one of the things I thought about was um, – what what would make it more what would make it possible for Americans to have a more fruitful um, political system? And I think Jeff identified one of the major obstacles, which is that over the last I guess I view it as generational. So Jeff talked about maybe the last ten or twelve years, which in some ways I agree with him in the sense of I think that we've now reached a demographic tipping point where there's enough Americans who have significantly different views about how the world is or operates. That in a way that we didn't have before, that we've reached a critical mass of like two groups of people of relatively equal size demographically who d- disagree fundamentally on mm-hmm. many things. And I think there are a number of things that account for that. So, for example, the religious participation rate among Americans um, historically had been high, especially for a Western country. And now, especially when you look at it generationally, it's frankly in free fall. So it's, right. it, it's, and so if a person's a religious person, they're going to have different answers to the same questions than a person who is non-religious. Why am I here? Right, The religious person, I gave the answer earlier, the non-religious person might have a series of answers, including the answer of there is no answer, right? Mm-hmm. And so those kind of people are going to have a difficult time agreeing on substantive policy issues and even having a diff- difficult time agreeing on what are the terms of the discussion that they're going to have. And I think when you look at the demographics of the United States, the baby boom was the, uh, boomers were the last generation of, rel- if church going is a proxy for religiosity, they're the last generation that had relatively high church going, and they're mm. now in the passing phase. I think a second reason is that since the late 19th century, we have for the first time a, an ability, we as humans have the ability to explain phenomenon in the world in non-religious terms. So where do human beings mm. come from? Well, God created us as one explanation. Another explanation is that we evolve from lower forms of life. And so for the first time, a person who maybe had, for whatever reason, wanted to be non-religious, had a plausible explanation for that world. and so. Those two different people, the person who says God created me in his image and, and I am the result of random chance and evolution from lower forms of life, have fundamentally different views about what it means to be a human being and therefore all these other implications like, like abortion and marriage would come into play. And then third, I think that one of the things that actuated a shift 
uh, that actuated the shift from people from a religious worldview to a scientific worldview. Now, I'm not, now I don't pause here. I'm not saying that you can't be religious and scientific. In fact, I think that the best scientific view is one that is mm-hmm. foundationally religious. But I think that something triggered that. And I think what it was was a confluence of events around the 1960s, so the mid-20th century, that challenged traditional institutions and traditional ways of life in an unprecedented way. So think of all the things that were introduced in the mid-20th century. So you had new technologies, right, like the birth control pill that allowed people to do something that maybe people had wanted to do in the past but never could do cheaply and effectively. Or for the first time, we had suburbanization. So people who had lived in the same place for generations now had the freedom, which freedom's a good thing, to be able to move uh, autonomously and anonymously to new places around new people. Think about popular culture. Mass media for the first time existed, and it created a phenomenon of, for example, teen culture that distracted young people away from their parents and their parents' pedagogy. And so I think when you put those three things together, you get now the tipping point that Jeff was describing, which is that we have demographically more, we a relatively equally split country between people who have, I would say, basically a religious view and a basically non-religious view, and those folks have a hard time having conversations. You know, what's interesting is, uh, thank you for that, um, the original Michael Creighton novel, Jurassic Park, we may, we may only know those of us who are those who may happen to be as movie watchers know as this fun dinosaur movie. That's right. But it's he was a doctor, Michael Creighton, and wrote with tremendous insight into human culture, not necessarily as a Christian or believer. But the thesis of Jurassic Park was the simple: because we can, does that mean we should? You see a little bit of it in the movies, but you know, as you're talking about these, uh, should we say, social trends, um, these you know, kind of awakening and, and ability to accomplish all of these different things, um, without value, where are they leading us? Without values, guiding values, are they bringing us together? Are they are they fostering intimacy? That's another conversation, another time. I don't get too far away from that, but um, I, I want to ask the question. So, principally in this country, uh, right now, the prominent parties are the Republicans and the Democrats. And would it have been possible before this year to ever see somebody who's an avowed socialist ever be vying for uh, the top uh, the top, the candidacy, the nomination for the Democratic Party. It seems to me that that never would have been a possibility eight years ago, even eight years ago, uh, or, or further than that. And of course, on the other side, you've got um, Republicans um, who tend to be, you know, maybe reinforcing, if you will, what is often called right politics, you know, uh, even though they're staying away from the word establishment. Um, fundamental values, you might even say, dare we say, constitutional values, we, we hear that again and again. So I'm kind of asking the question, what are underlying philosophies today, 2016, that distinguish the respective parties that merit conversation? The fundamental values and the philosophies that distinguish uh, separate parties. I do have a thought on that, but I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so I think that's a great question. And I, I'm thinking back to the to the last uh, party conventions. I don't know if you remember. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of the Democratic one where they had the cartoon about Julia. Did you guys see that? And so there's the, the Democratic convention the last time around started off with a, with a cartoon about a, a young woman, mm, a, yes. a person named Julia. Oh, right, right. And the theme of the cartoon was that somebody was going to be there at every step of the way to help Julia be the the best person that Julia wanted to be, that somebody wasn't her mom and dad, that somebody wasn't her church, that somebody wasn't her neighbors, that somebody was the U.S. government. And so so I think that, that you would never see that cartoon, right, at a Republican convention. And, um, and I think, so what explains 
that different perspective on there. And it goes back to what you were saying, Greg, about Bernie Sanders being an openly avowed socialist. And uh, that being something, I would say, unpre- yeah, unprecedented, although I think the substance was there. For example, Truman advocated single-payer sure. system back in the late 40s. And, um, and so I explains that I actually think that the previous demographic shift that I identified allows for a lot of explanation, right? So when you look at party voting patterns, what you see is that church attendance is a really, really good proxy for party affiliation and party voting. And so those folks who tend to go, uh, a vast majority of people who go to church weekly, vote Republican. The vast majority of folks who go to church never or irregularly vote Democratic. Now there's people in the middle, of course, who spin different ways. And so I think that what you see that is that people there, people in the pews or not in the pews are seeing that the different parties represent their perspective. And I think going back to the last Democratic convention again, remember they had a huge challenge keeping uh, the word God in the Democratic Party platform as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just like a, one more little symbol about the Democratic Party has evolved, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so my family, Catholic immigrants, um, my, my father-in-law's family, Catholic immigrants, JFK came to the farm back in the 60s, right? And, uh, and that party is no longer there. And, and I think you see a, uh, a winnowing out, uh, beginning with abortion, increasing with acceleration, um, with uh, the, the issue of what counts as marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think we'll see more issues as well. And so Richard John Newhouse about, oh, I wanna say five years ago, wrote an mm-hmm. article, an autobiographical article, talking about why he went from being a Democrat to being a Republican. And he talked about the life issue was key to that, but it was tied to his broader Christian perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a person who views that human beings aren't don't have a divine purpose that that science is has whatever answers there are science has that then I think having a governmental s- structure that tries to enable you to pursue the the ends that you give yourself is going to be more attractive than one of a different party that's going to say here here are ends that are preordained in you that are made in you for example when it comes to marriage guys and gals and and um, and, uh, and and from the Democratic perspe- Party perspective, that that a, a government of expert bureaucrats providing you with the space to pursue the ends that you set for yourself is going to be attractive to you in a way it's not to regular churchgoers. So I think actually the, the same demographic trends explain the differences in the parties to a large degree today. Let's talk for a moment about principles that ought to guide a Catholic vote. And before we even get there, I think it's important for our listeners to understand this is a Catholic station, and we're professing to be Catholics, and contained in our Catholicism is a profound respect for every individual to choose their own faith, to choose their own philosophy, if you will. There is no, nothing forceful uh, about Catholicism if you choose, you know, but we, so my point is, we are proposing, based upon revelation in Jesus Christ, to our faith, we are proposing fundamental truths and values. And the issues that we hold flow from this revelation in Jesus Christ. They aren't simply things we agreed upon or voted upon. They are things that we regard as um, corresponding to God himself who revealed us in his nature. And uh, whether we understand it or not also, we, yes, we want to understand it. I love that, uh, that formulation of theology, fides quarrens intellectum, faith-seeking understanding. So it's nice when we understand it, and we ought to seek understanding, but as Catholics, 
these truths that are being proposed to us to believe in, to have faith in. And I think, you know, so starting right there, it's incumbent upon those who approach this as a Catholic, as a defining Catholic, to recognize and or try to understand why does the Church teach what she teaches. And I'd even add to that, why is it a good for the human person? Why is it, uh, you know, even sociologically, you know, people have been brought to Catholicism. Why do we understand that a lot of these propositions for our belief uh, played out over time reveal a good for the human person? As Chesterton said, I like to quote a lot, we can't so much break the law, only break ourselves against the law. You know, I can define, redefine the road all I want and say I'm going to create my own contour, but I'm going to smash into the berm and my car is going to be, you know, damaged or worse. Um, So that even uh, via negativa, we come to the awareness of these truths of our life. So for our listeners, we're not having a conversation, uh, if you will, about a good outside the context of Catholicism, but Catholicism speaks to that good. And so I want to ask you, Lee, what might be, um, with that sort of as a basis as Catholics, what are some guiding principles for those of us who profess to be Catholics in our participation in politics? Sure. Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's I, I think, a challenging question where reasonable people disagree on many facets of it. So let me say some things that I think are relatively uncontroversial, both in the kind of the general point and in the more concrete that's examples. That's too bad. Uncontroversial? <laughs> Come on. Oh, that's, that's right. This is politics. So, um, so when it comes to, for example, we're in the presidential season, thinking about a presidential candidate, I think there are two basic criteria that people need to evaluate those candidates on. So the first is, and they're related, and it's a, it's a quotient of the best substance of the particular candidate, the substantive positions the candidate holds, um, uh, multiplied by the likelihood of that candidate's ability to to succeed. So if you have a candidate who is 100% right on the substance but has a 0% chance of winning, that person I think is counted out. Vice versa, if a person has 100% chance of winning and is 0% uh, on the substance, that person is also counted out. But obviously those are unusual examples. Although I think there's somebody really close. So like I was thinking of, you're from Pennsylvania, Rick Santorum, who I didn't agree with him on every issue, but boy, oh boy, he came close to mm-hmm, what I think are mm-hmm. the right positions on almost all issues. But in the last round, I didn't this in this current round, I didn't support him, be, although I did in the past because I thought he had a close to zero percent chance mm-hmm. of success. And so I think those are the ways that you evaluate the candidates generally, and then thinking about uh, and and so let's focus on likelihood of winning. That's that's a challenging prudential judgment that mm-hmm. a lot of factors go into, and um, and I don't think I have any special insight on that. Uh, how, how to evaluate that other than other than doing a lot of reading and seeing what um, what poll numbers are and what you think is persuasive mm-hmm, to Americans mm-hmm. or not. Um, although there's one actually side note on that. So in our own co- family, the com- one of the conversations is what do we do about Donald Trump, right? So if one thinks that Donald Trump is likely, has more likelihood of winning than maybe somebody with whom you agree on the substance, then somebody, who el- somebody else who you think you agree substantively more What do you do in that situation? And in particular with Donald Trump, I think it's even more tricky because let's say that you think that the reason that Donald Trump is likely to win is because you think that what makes Donald Trump appealing isn't itself, isn't like wicked, but is a sign or manifestation of a less robust American political culture than you would like. And so what I mean by that is Donald Trump is an entertainer. I mean, he's a lot of things, but he's an entertainer. And if that is what makes him likable to people is voting for him in some way contributing to that degradation of our political culture. So mm. so there's the so one factor is the winning. The other factor that most conversations focus on in Catholic circles is the substance. And there are, again, two categories uh, of evaluating those types of issues. So there are some issues on which there clearly are correct answers. So for example, what does it mean to be a human being? A human being is a human being from conception and not from some other point. Uh, what What is what is marriage? Um, 
What is, uh, what is, is religious liberty valuable? The answer is yes. And then there are a whole bunch of issues that deal with most of what presidential politics deals about that um, are, are where the correct answer is less clear. And so, for example, um, it is the case that Christians need to embrace environmental protection, but it's not the case that there's a clearly right, there's, that, that there's, a, there's a way that is so clearly correct that all people of good faith must adopt. And um, the environment, uh, economic structuring might be another example. You mentioned earlier, Greg, about- Foreign policy, our involvement and role in the world, those sorts of things. Yeah, you mentioned earlier about, about socialism and Bernie Sanders being the first about mm-hmm. socialist. And I was thinking about, what about all the parties in Europe who, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Christian Democrats, right, um, in Germany, those parties are a lot of things, including relatively socialistic mm-hmm. compared to what we're comfortable with. Now, I think that they are way off and that, that's hurt them in a lot of ways, but I think that that's not, that that position isn't necessarily, and I'm not sure why I'm saying this, but not counted out as a plausible position for a Christian to hold, at least in certain circumstances. So maybe maybe in a given culture, in a given time, it might be appropriate to take that position. Um, so I think that's how you evaluate, as a general way, um, different candidates or different parties um, is a combination of who's the best horse and then who's the fastest horse. I, I guess those are the same thing. Who's the fastest horse and who's the best looking horse? <laughs> who's going to get us there? Um, so you identified three areas um, that Pope Benedict, in fact, the 16th, identifies as non-negotiable principles of the moral law, and you just you nailed them. And I had been doing a little research on this also, how to so answer you it. The exam. Okay. Well, it, you. Just, but just you know, so he says life. And this is from the EWTN website, but it is obviously drawing from Pope Benedict XVI. And under each category, it uh, specifies where each respective um, party stands with these issues. So life, the protection and dignity of every human life from conception to natural death, the framework within and against which every other issue must be measured. Secondly, of course, marriage and family. Uh, of course, we saw the Obergefell decision uh, this past summer, which was really fascinating, uh, right in from the first paragraph in dealing with questions of identity and, um, and the implications for that. And then thirdly, we've got um, authentic human freedom, uh, which we've seen also major challenges in all three of these areas. Mm-hmm. The Planned Parenthood circumstances recently in one of the parties, the Democrat Credit Party uh, supporting Planned Parenthood, of which a substantial amount of their budget contributes to abortion, the selling of body parts, and that whole tragic situation uh, with marriage and family, the Obergefell decision, which kind of was a raw act of judicial power, I would say, hearkening back to Griswold versus Connecticut and Roe v. Wade, kind of finding maybe rights that, that don't exist. I'm interested in your comments on that. And, of course, human freedom, the Little Sisters of the Poor. What, what's the uh, religious group right now that... Uh, um, you know, has to um, is under Obamacare and has to provide contraception. I think they're suing. Whatever. Can you comment on some of those issues? Sure. You know, one of the things I, I was thinking about before we came on the radio was about the the challenges, frankly, that Catholics face in their participation in public life. So, so again, this isn't your Leave It to Beaver America, and um, and the issues that you identify, Greg, used to be part of the consensus, right? Mm-hmm. Life was a part of the consensus. What mm-hmm. marriage was was a part of it. Religious liberty was clearly a part of it. Mm-hmm. And all of that, those consensus, the consensus on each of those has dissolved. Although the consensus on religious liberty and marriage, this gets back to Jeff's comment o- over the phone, was relatively recent. I, and I have to say, I was stunned by the speed with which the, what I thought was the consensus regarding religious liberty and, and marriage to a lesser degree had, had fallen away. Actually, Archbishop Chaput recently had a comment where 
he wrote a book, uh, Give Unto Caesar, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And the recent comment was, and part of the book was that it, that the, the kind of things that he was discussing, he didn't think he had to discuss. And now he re- the comment was effectively saying that that the tide has turned, that 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 the perspective of religious Americans who carry that worldview into different areas of life and into politics is in, is in the, is the minority position now. And so it, it makes it actually even more important that Catholics uh, participate in public life but also form their children for the challenges that they're going to face. And, you know, but politics is a vocation as well, forming your children who have that skill set and who have that inclination to be to be great leaders. You mentioned Justice Scalia earlier. Uh, because they can they can they can change the course of the country for the better in a way that many great leaders have done I um did a little search uh, on the prem on this premise that because in this republic democracy we have power we have culpability so I'm going to get a little controversial here maybe for the average listener but to articulate the truth We are given power, decision-making power in this country, and the vote is part of that. Therefore, we have a moral culpability, a moral responsibility. In other words, we will be held responsible for our actions in that regard. Put another way, certain things by our vote, even though we know that my vote alone may not be the one that makes it happen, we are declaring ourselves for against a particular uh, you know, if you will, moral actions that, that might result knowingly from these particular candidates. So um, one of my good friends, Father Matthew Habiger, was my first job out of college, Human Life International. He later became the president of Human Life International. Very, very bright uh, Benedictine moral theologian. And uh, in searching the question, is it a sin to vote for a pro-abortion candidate? I just want to read this paragraph. And again, I invite you all to call in 877 877- Two seven five eight zero nine eight eight seven seven two seven five eight zero nine eight. So Father Matthew says every Catholic should know that abortion is a gravely serious evil, and as such is never to be supported. In the Vatican's Declaration on Procured Abortions, there is a discussion of morality and law. Quote, Man may never obey a law which is in itself immoral, and such is the case of a law which would admit in principle the licity how to pronounce that word, of abortion. And then he accentuates this, quote, nor can he take part in a propaganda campaign in favor of such a law or vote for it. Moreover, he may not collaborate in its application. It is, for instance, inadmissible that doctors or nurses should find themselves obligated to cooperate closely in abortions and have to choose between the law of God and their professional situation. So clearly in this paragraph, the answer is, presuming you have the choice between a candidate who's pro-life and one who's not in our circumstances, the straightforward answer to the question, is it a sin to vote for a pro-abortion politician, of which right now the two front-running candidates for the Democratic Party both are, the answer is yes, it is a sin. Any thoughts on that? Boy, thanks for putting me on the spot, Greg. <laughs> now this, no this doubt. Is, this isn't being recorded, is it? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so th- one way that helps me evaluate the question that you identified is to use analogies to situations that maybe are less pressing to us now, and the one that comes to mind is slavery. And mm. so so mm. you had, let's say you had two candidates. You had uh, a person named Lincoln and a person named Douglas, although there were other people at the time as well. 
One uh, was for restricting slavery, and one was for the expansion of slavery. So Lincoln was restricting, Douglas was for expansion. And let's say that you otherwise had previously been a Democrat, so you were in Stephen Douglas's party, and that you otherwise believed, let's say, his economic agenda because you thought that the Jacksonian perspective on small business and big banks were bad was the right way to feel your own and your fellow citizens' economic dreams, and that on a whole host of other issues that you thought that Douglas was right. Uh, but you also thought that Lincoln was right when it came to the inequity of slavery. I think that presents a kind of an analogous situation here. And so to the extent that you and your audience would say you can't vote for the pro-slavery politician, even despite their other issues, and I think most people would take that view, then I think the analogy would be that today that one can't vote for a pro-abortion politician, even if there were other policy positions that you thought were favorable mm-hmm. to them. And um, and, and there's, there's, a, there's a document that the CDF put out, I want to say about 10 years ago now, talking about, it was a note on Catholic politicians, talking about what Catholic politicians could do licitly, but also how we as voters should respond to different politicians. And so, uh, as we talked about off the air earlier, if we were in the United Kingdom, where the, the par- both major parties were pro-abortion, then we wouldn't have an option for voting pro- for a pro-life candidate. And then I think these other variables would come into to, 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 to play. But that's not us, at least not yet, and hopefully not mm-hmm. ever. And so we have the, we have... We have candidates, and we actually have a party, although imperfect, that is working towards and still holds towards a pro-life view, a religious liberty view, and a traditional marriage view. And so that's that. those are not just one issue, right, mm, abortion. Right, right. Those are three right. culturally defining and, 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 and the survival of the culture type issues that are, that are at, at base. And so it would be hard for me to imagine what could be the other issue that would outweigh the correctness on those three issues. So, so maybe that argument's out there, but I'm not exactly sure what that argument would be. And when you think about, you mentioned earlier about Americans being culpable for whether we vote or not, but also for whether we vote correctly or not mm-hmm. with an informed judgment. Think about the type of government that we have, and I think you were alluding to this, right? This isn't Maryland, England, where the king made the decisions. This is the United States. It's a republic where, in principle and in practice, to some degree, what we say matters. And so we're not we're not a secular place like France where religious arguments ha- are not allowed by the law in public square. We're not a theocracy where only religious arguments uh, like Iran are, are in the public square. We're our own system, right? We're both secular and religious arguments are, are welcomed in the public square, have been traditionally and should be welcomed in the public square. And so our system of government is set up so that people like us are able to participate, not just with one hand tied behind our back, but, with, but fully making religious arguments, for example, in favor of the right to life, against slavery, um, and uh, for, or we mentioned earlier the environment, making environmental arguments mm-hmm. in favor of a robust uh, protection for the environment. I'm going to pivot hard with the time we have left, hoping to cut out five minutes uh, from now to pray um, to a, a, a subject very close to you the events of this past week and the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. And if you haven't heard this absolutely beautiful opening of the remarks homily by his son, Father Paul Scalia, I'm going to read them now. He said, We are gathered here because of one man, a man known personally to many of us, known only by reputation to even more, a man loved by many, scorned by others, a man known for great controversy and for great compassion. That man, of course, is Jesus of Nazareth. Very powerful. So, Lee, um, what happened last week? Let's talk about the Supreme Court. What happened and why is it significant? Sir, so last Saturday, uh, Justice Scalia passed away. Justice Scalia 
um, had many characteristics. Uh, he was known as a uh, as an originalist, so he interpreted the Constitution according to its original meaning when it was ratified. He was known as being relatively politically conservative, so if, if he had his druthers, for example, he would ban flag burning the day after tomorrow. Um, uh, although, in a particular case, the law pushed him in a different way. Um, and he was also known as a prominent public uh, Roman Catholic whose faith influenced him not in the results, I think, of particular decisions, but in his loyalty to the law and his loyalty to, to the United States and the United States Constitution. And so with Justice Scalia being off the court, what that means is what used to be a 4-1-4 liberal, middle-of-the-road conservative split has become a 3-1-4 mm. with uh, the conservative side being less frequent. And, um, and there are a lot of important cases up before the court now that are going to maybe not necessarily go against the right position, but are not going to go for the right position. And, of course, President Obama is going to nominate somebody, and we have approximately uh, eight months, and then we have approximately a year before a new president takes office, and there will be a year-long fight over whether or not that nominee gets confirmed. And if that person has a view similar to President Obama's as opposed to Justice Scalia's, that would be a generational change on the Supreme Court, one that I don't think our kids would see um, – would would see their way out of that. Mm-hmm. I think that it would it would mean that the Supreme Court would be a reliable, not just liberal, but an aggressively liberal vote uh, against religious liberty, in favor of so-called uh, positive constitutional rights. For example, to welfare, uh, a taxpayer. An example would be taxpayer-supported abortion, um, limitations on free speech for religious persons. There's there's a there's a plethora. Uh, you you like you like gun rights. Gun rights gone. Um, so there's a plethora of bad substantive outcomes. That would occur, I think. Okay, so thank you for all that. And another program, another time. But can you give us a quick comment on perhaps a Catholic perspective of jurisprudence, constitutionality, how we should approach the Constitution as a Catholic? Sure. I think Justice Scalia was a was a great exemplar for that. He was somebody who was my one of my personal intellectual heroes, and so he was somebody who was art, articulate. He was somebody who was forceful, but but very respectful, very jovial. One of the one of the comments that I've heard over the last week was how Justice Scalia his his home was always open to people. They had dinner mm-hmm. conversations. The conversations were fun because they drank a lot of wine, um, <laughs> but also but also robust and engaging in 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 a, in a powerful way. Justice Scalia approached the Constitution. As law, and so law is something that um, allows us as a community to work with each other, work within the bounds of the rule of law. There's a procedure for changing that rule of law. That procedure was not, Justice Scalia said, through creative interpretations, uh, through non-originalist interpretations. And so Justice Scalia was the foremost advocate. He made the theory of originalism politically. I'm sorry, uh, intellectually respectable mm-hmm. in the late '80s, early mm-hmm. '90s. And he made it viable. So the case I mentioned earlier about gun rights, it was Heller versus District of Columbia. That was a major case that for many years people thought would go the other way. And it's because of the power of originalism that he was able to uh, protect gun rights under the Second Amendment. Lee, it has really been a blessing to have you with us here, a blessing to our community and uh, many others. Love to have you back sometime and maybe just share with us a little bit about uh, originalism, if I <laughs> pronounce that correctly. The audience and, is clamoring. I yeah, hear right, that. right. Uh, well, I think it's it's important. Um, we want to create that space that's right. where we can talk about it, because obviously it has direct implications. And uh, Anyways, we're going to invite you folks now to just join us in lifting up 
these intentions in prayer that we like to do at the end. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we lift up Maria's intention for her friend Katie, who's been diagnosed with cancer, for her amazing husband and four children who are just ages six and under. Be with them during this difficult time, Lord, and if it be your holy will to have a cure for them. Diane is asking for continued faithfulness with five exclamation points and a heart. So, Lord, do we not all, you know, we all desire greater faithfulness, but let let your grace be poured out on her, whatever is in her heart, and the rest of us, God, who, who do seek greater faithfulness. I'm also going to lift up uh, my good friend Tom and our classmate Augie, who's in stage four cancer, married with some younger children, Lord, that just your comforting, healing arms be upon him and all come to more fully know you in your presence. Rally asks for prayers um, for a, uh, a healing with a sickness. Gigi is lifting up some friends who lost their son in a car accident two days ago. Lord, be with them during this very uh, mournful time. And for his soul and for their continued comforts, Um, She also requests prayers, Lord, for the consolation of that grief, um, for safe travels for her parents, and uh, for conversion, healing, and humility for a loved one. John asks us, we lift up uh, the cutbacks in the diocese and other places where people will be losing jobs. We lift up Brenda, who's going to be having surgery today. Let your blessing be upon her. For personal intention from Heidi regarding health and jobs, and for Bob's continued prayers for the healing of Yvonne. Um, we pray, uh, Brenda prays for her dad who has uh, some real physical challenges. Let your grace be upon him and Brenda. Uh, prays for St. Mary's Parish to overcome some real challenges. Uh, Mary prays for Matt, Rose, Don, Angela, Julia, Scott, Meredith, Dustin, Mike families that are grieving today for an end of violence and abortion in this country. Greg lifts up Jessica, who just lost her father. Father Dave prays, Lord, for Corey's healing, who recently received a liver transplant from his sister. For these and all the intentions here, Lord, we lift them up to your glory. Amen. 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 Amen.